Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. Roll Call, the granddaddy of the Hill Rags, started it all. What was really up until about a decade ago, a sleepy trade publication in actual newsprint covering the bills, the hearings, the comings and goings of Capitol Hill is today largely irrelevant to the proliferation of sophisticated media operations that report in excruciating detail on every aspect of the legislative and regulatory processes here in Washington. Regular listeners to 14th and G will be shocked to learn that I am forced to supplement the massive earnings generated by this podcast by working as a federally registered lobbyist. Before my first cup of coffee, my inbox is filled with dozens of news stories and analyses from services like Politico, Bloomberg Government, Axios, and Punchbowl. These services are not just helpful to my work, they have transformed my profession. And add the bulwark to the mix. News Network launched in 2018, providing political analysis and reporting free from the constraints of partisan loyalties or tribal prejudices. That is not to say they don't have a point of view. One of the most interesting aspects of the bulwark is their positioning as part of the right-of-center counterreaction to the Trump era of the Republican Party. You may recall the Republican Party, uh, one of America's two major political parties. They controlled the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives up until about three years ago, uh, currently in the wilderness, sorting themselves out. And to help sort all of this out, I am really pleased to have as my guest today the editor of The Bulwark, Jonathan Last. He's written for every major news publication there is. He's a bit of a podcaster himself, and he has also made a detailed and compelling case for why the Empire is preferable to the Galactic Republic in the Star Wars universe. Jonathan Last, welcome to 14th and G. Dean, it is great to be with somebody who not only remembers Roll Call, but remembers the hotline. Do you remember <laughs> oh, hotline? Oh, I remember was... the hotline. Oof. In fact, Jonathan, I asked for and received for my 15th birthday a subscription to the Conservative Chronicle. Uh, this was a thick newsprint wow. compilation of conservative columnists, Donald Lambro and Joe Sobran and Mona Chirin and Bill Crystal and pre-internet, it was the only way to get columnists. Your local paper didn't carry. And you know, I think about that sometimes surveying today's media landscape. How have you seen that landscape evolve and, and where does the bulwark fit into it? It has evolved in ways which were crazy and interesting and I think net net have all been bad. I mean, you know, some some advantages, <laughs> some things that are better. But when you net it all out, I think things are worse now than they were 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, so I joked about the hotline. The hotline was for, for people who are under the age of, of 35. If you worked in a Washington office at 12 p.m., there would be some kid in the office. It was me at the Weekly Standard right. who would stand <laughs> in the the mailroom and wait for the fax machine to start spitting out this 35-page compendium of all the important news from the last 24 hours and that that little you know gopher again which was me would then make copies of it for everybody in the office and then would walk around the office handing these copies to everybody it was i think chuck todd was the editor for a while yeah, that's now, true the guy who now sits in tim russert's chair and i think nora o'donnell who's now the the main anchor on cbs evening news was a there staff was assistant there and hotline yes. pm 
And and this is again, we are not talking about monks recopying the Bible by hand <laughs> three thousand years ago or something. We're talking about something that that I did when I was when I was right. a kid starting I'm, out. I'm waiting for you to tell me that you could get into the movie for a quarter and uh, still have change left over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the you know so the internet comes along, and the first thing that happens is we get the blogging revolution, and the second thing that happens that that sort of democratizes the the act of publishing. Following that, we have the the evolution of Craigslist, which blows up the classified advertising market for and, and begins what becomes the destruction of the entire newspaper business. Right. And and then we get Twitter and Facebook and social media. And what social media does then is is blows out even the advertising model behind and and the subscription model frankly behind most of print media and on the parallel track with all this you have the rise of cable news which you know again i was i can't i was around for the birth of fox news i mean once upon a time there was there was just cnn and then Microsoft and NBC launched this crazy network, which is why it's called MSNBC. I think people don't realize that that's, that's where <laughs> MS comes from. <laughs> and so the, the media landscape shifted. It became much more of a 24-hour thing, which it didn't used to be. Again, within living memory, even of people who are, I think of myself as reasonably young, even though I'm close to middle age, I guess, that network of news became faster, it became more partisan, it became much more democratized. And I think the main lesson from all of this is that none of those developments turn out to be good. Right. Not only 24 hours, Jonathan, but if you think of the conservative chronicle, and if, if I was subscribing to that at 15, I, I'll leave it to you to guess how many years later I started dating. But... <laughs> <laughs> But it, not only 24 hours and democracy, but no gatekeepers. These columnists that, that I would wait every week to read, even the cable news, there are editors and producers and vetters of the information that's provided. And, and those gatekeepers are just increasingly either not present or irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have now YouTube news channels, essentially. I mean, forget over the top streaming networks, right? You now have essentially YouTube channels, which are beginning to serve the function of an alt, alt, alt version of broadcast. Right. I, I just think in the end of the day, we are basically all the worse off for it. And I, I vacillate between thinking that there's nothing that can be done. And so we have to make the best of it. And and thinking that actually new technologies always disrupt, but are then reformed. Right. You know, I mean, the printing press was highly disruptive and was reformed. That's why we have the copyright. This comes from English law that we decided we, you know, the King of England decided we, we got to govern the use of the printing press because otherwise intellectual property is going to be rendered valueless and that will have very bad outcomes for society. You know, the automobile, right? We have we have stoplights and stop signs and all sorts of things which didn't exist when the automobiles were first being produced. I think that there there may be some ways to reform and try to I try to bear in mind that we are in this sort of this digestive phase of uh, of all technology and the social implications and, and the disruptions there. Uh, you know, over time, uh, I hope there there will be some governors put on all of this. Yeah, but the 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 bear case for this is that because the pace of technol technological advancement is quickening. 
we don't actually have the time to digest, right? I mean, there's there's new, new, new coming faster and faster. And so society doesn't have the time to digest and reform and optimize uh, on technology in the way it used to. Well, one of its most obvious implications for all of it, uh, the technology, the pace of news, the lack of gatekeepers is, is pretty obvious uh, in our politics. And the bulwark does position itself in opposition to Trump and Trumpism, I, I think retaining what I would say is a right of center sensibility, if I'm right on that. Jonathan, if I'm for low taxes and strong defense and pro-life and pro-Second Amendment, without all the nonsense and vitriol, you know, I might ask you, what's my political home? But I get the impression you feel some more basic questions, particularly around the rule of law, need to be answered before that sort of right of center conservative view has a home. I have that right? Yeah, I, yeah that's that's basically my my operating thesis right now, which may turn out to be incorrect, is that we have sorted ourselves out traditionally along a, a left right political spectrum. And, you know, of course, there's a horseshoe effect to this where the, you know, if you go all the way out to the right, you end up hitting the left and, and vice versa. But that we over the last five years have have been resorting ourselves much more along an up and down axis, a y axis where up is de is democracy and the rule of law and down is essentially more in favor of an anti-democratic soft authoritarianism which is much much more like the rule by law than the rule of law and my general view is that we are in the process of sorting out all of those other goods, things like what you think about the Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, by, by trying to place them along that y-axis rather than along that x-axis. And we haven't fully digested that. We haven't made those changes yet. And to a large degree, that's part of the Bulwark's project is to help people think through and sort out what this new world looks like. And believe me, nobody would be happier than I am. If it turns out that this this foundational view is simply wrong and that we don't have a an anti-democratic stronghold in American society, well, is that, and, it'd, be, and, it'd be great if that was wrong. In that every fight and, and particularly these these culture war issues that I laid out in that every fight is the last fight in that every fight is the fundamental fight to the future of democracy. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. If it turns out that that's that that's not true, mm. and that they are that we are all basically still the same people we were in 2010, and that both sides are basically willing to lose and fight another day, but I I think it seems like one side is not there yet, and maybe not all of that side. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, maybe it's only five percent of that side. Maybe it's twenty percent of that side. I don't know. But it's. What I keep coming back to is, you know what? So when I talk to people and I say things like, hey, one of our two major political parties now is nakedly authoritarian to some large degree. And people say, oh, but it's only 5% of that party or it's only 20% of that party. And I think to myself, yeah, you can you can do a lot of damage with 20% of half the country. <laughs> well, you know? it, it kind of goes to a question I have. Does And, and we talk about uh, this this modern media landscape which is rather depressing, Trump coming to control the Republican Party. Do you think those things, and I, they're obviously intertwined, I mean, Trump's use of Twitter alone, but are they symptom or are they cause? That's the, the big question. I mean, that's the $64,000 question. And when I am, when I'm being really dark, I say that they are symptoms, 
because what I did, I, I had every, every, every you close the curtains, turn out the lights, you curl yeah, up. Yeah, I put position. on the doors, <laughs> right? I put on the doors. So every, every journalist has a couple of great unwritten pieces, you know, pieces that they started on and worked on for a long time, but then never got around to writing. One of mine was written or rather was not written in, in 2018. And I talked to a bunch of political professionals, people who did campaigns on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. And what I was asking all of them, the, the thesis for this piece was, was Donald Trump a, an aberration uh, you know, just a perfect storm that happened and nobody could have predicted. Was he a black swan or was he inevitable? And what shocked me to the core was that every single campaign professional I spoke with, both Republican and Democrat, mm-hmm. said that Trump was 100% inevitable. And they said it's all about demographic change. When when societies undergo rapid demographic change, you always wind up with a revanchist movement. Yeah, and that this is true in all times and all places. And that scared the crap out of me, to be quite honest. And what's one of the reasons I think that the Republican Party has taken on the cast that it has over the last five years, uh, where they are just sort of openly no longer looking to assemble a majority coalition, but simply looking to use the built-in leverage that is, is afforded them by the Electoral College and geography in the Senate to be able to capture power with like 42 or 44% of the vote. And that that's dangerous, I think. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, you can say what you want about George W. Bush. George W. Bush was running to be president of everybody. He was trying to win 50%, point, you know, 50% plus one of the vote. I don't think that's true of the Republican Party anymore. And, and in fact, you see many elected Republicans who will sim- openly admit it. That they, you know, the the idea is they got to restrict voting, drive down the numbers of of people who come to the polls because that's that's their only path to power, and that's yeah, not no, a party that's anyway anymore looking to expand its coalition. Yeah, let me see if I can sort of articulate the the pushback you would I think get from a lot of people, and it is yes, it's very easy to find glowing remembrances of uh, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. But in their time, they were the American Hitler uh, in, in media portrayals as much as Donald Trump was. And it's hearing this over and over and, and, and people feeling like they are receiving a predetermined uh, media narrative, you know, whether it's symptom or cause, plays into the reaction you get from a lot of people. And the, it's not like the media didn't sound the alarm as soon as Trump went down the escalator, but half the country's not listening. Yeah, I mean, but the difference is is the size of the coalitions, right? I mean, the Reagan coalition was and was assembled in a very intentional way to include a, a huge part of the country, right? I mean, the Reagan coalition was basically built to encompass about 55% of the country and was, in fact, so big and so dominant that it enabled the Republican Party to win elections for like a decade after he was gone. George W. Bush increased his vote share from uh, from his first election to his reelection Again, this is a guy who is just, uh, you know, I, I think it's always useful to think of, of politics at the presidential level as, as through the lens of coalitions. And Bush was seeking to build and expand his coalition. And it looks to me like the Republican game plan now is not to expand their coalition, but in fact, to, to just drive up their margins with the groups they already have, right? So they're, 
they're looking to win high school educated white male voters in rural areas, not by 70-30, but by 85-15. Mm-hmm. And they are happy to to give up ex-urban voters. They're happy to give up non-white voters. They're happy to give up college-educated voters by whatever margins they're losing them by in order to get to those Saddam Hussein numbers with the people who are their base. <laughs> and so, don't, I, we, don't we all want Saddam Hussein levels yeah, right. of political so, support? <laughs> yeah. So... I, I just think that when you when you do that, you wind up in a death spiral, right? Where you can hang on for a few cycles that way if the base you're you're trying to mine is big enough, except that that base is shrinking, right? And so they have a shrinking base of support that they're trying to simply get bigger margins from instead of looking to to build out the coalition. And I think that ultimately leads our politics to a dangerous place. Yeah, but uh, you know that is politics. I mean, my I want to turn out my voters and keep the other guys' voters home, and it's not it's not a fifty plus one direct democracy. It never has been. The Senate is not a democratic institution. It's the foundational compromise between rural and and, and more industrial states that founded the country. So you know, I I think there's a little more to it than than the anti democratic sort of knee jerk. We are a continental nation of uh, 50 sovereign states. And, and how do you hold that sort of compromise together? I take your point. Sure. I mean, the states are the original gerrymander, right? right? I mean, this is, exactly. you always have to have borders. And I, I fully appreciate that. And I understand the when you get to the actual mechanics of elections, right? It's, about, it's always about turning out your people and not. But when you talk about the nature of building coalitions, politics is, you know, there, there is... <laughs> There's the, it's a truism for a reason. The politics is about addition, not subtraction, right? right. And that is not – I, I think there is no way to look at Republican politics today and say that this is a party which is looking to practice addition rather than subtraction. In fact, the opposite. Jonathan, well, what do you make of and, and what does it portend for 2022? You know, I had Dave Wasserman on probably about a month before Election Day. Uh, 2020, and his uh, his role is uh, he is the house editor for, uh, for the, the Cook, best for the Cook Political Report. Oh, the I guy, love that guy, all the guy does is, I mean, he can tell you every all 435 congressional districts who's running and and what the issues are. He's he's really is amazing. But you know, he was predicting he was predicting uh, pretty heavy gains for Democrats uh, in the House, and they came within seven seats of losing the majority. What do you make of the down ballot effect in 2020, even in states where, where Trump lost and and what that pretends for 22 and then 24? So Trump ran well behind Republicans in general, which is not surprising because that happened in 2016 as well. I did a piece shortly after the 2016 ele- election, which was a pretty deep dive on Wisconsin. And it was clear that the Wisconsin bottom of the ticket actually pulled Trump across the finish line. And this is weird for presidential candidates not to have coattails. Normally, presidents help the the bottom of the ticket, not not act as a drag against it. Certainly in a reelect. Yeah, right. And that was not the case. Now, going forward, the redistricting that's happening this year suggests to me that Republicans could take control of the House just on redistricting alone. Right. So if every if everything stays stays static in terms of votes cast from 2020 to 2022, 
just the redrawing of the districts could probably swing those last seven seats over to the R's. But I don't know. I mean, everything isn't going to stay the same. We're going to have this weird new world where I, I think 2022 doesn't fit doesn't fit a lot of molds uh, in terms of looking. You know, we always look for past precedents, right? Right. Because we're going to have a pretty clear delineation of before COVID and after COVID, right? I mean, at some point, COVID will be basically under control. We will be back to something that looks like normal life, and. That is what the 2022 reelect or midterm election will be will be fought on. So I think it'll be a little bit closer to like the the 2002 reelect, right? Where it it wasn't a pure referendum on W. It was a it was really a referendum on the American reaction to 9/11, and I I think that is more likely to be. One of the only midterms in modern history in which the president's party picked up seats in the House, 2002. Yeah, but, you could have, but you could have seen it going the other way, right? I mean, if you and I had been sitting in October of 2002 staring at that, we could have seen it going both ways, right? You could right. have seen it as, you know, well, this is a, a moment for Democrats to make a more national unity type play, right? So you're, they're looking to be elected not as a counterbalance, but as uh, as a reinforcement to the president in a time of crisis. And I think you can see that both ways for this reelect as well, or for this midterm election as well. You know, when, if things are back to normal post-COVID, you could see voters wanting to reward Biden and Democrats, or you could see voters saying, see, everything is back to normal. We can go back to divided government. Well, I think by any objective measure, you're going to have to say uh, the first 100 days of the Biden presidency has been a success. He has made a brand out of normalcy with a capital N. Also, while former President Trump has largely stayed off the public stage, uh, he had a CPAC appearance, but uh, he has not returned to Twitter <laughs> I would say Biden has picked a lot of the low-hanging political fruit uh, in terms of, of COVID response and, and the next sort of iterations of infrastructure and other priorities are going to be more difficult. But how long do you think those two things can last, Biden's success and Trump absence? I don't know. You know, it's funny you say that it's been a successful first 100 days because at CPAC, Former President Donald J. Trump insisted that Biden had had the worst first hundred days in the history of the country. The worst. And the the, the absolute worst. Uh, no, I think you're right. Biden has done pretty well with the exception. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, people, when they joke about basketball, they say basketball is really a really simple game. You just score more points than the other guy. Uh, <laughs> and there is a simplistic way to view being president. Being president is really simple. You just just pass popular things. Right. And he has done that with the exception of the Keystone XL pipeline, EO. All of his EOs are well above the 50% mark in approval. The COVID bill is incredibly high approval rating. He has sidestepped all of the things which were promised to be super radical, like court packing and abolishing the filibuster and imposing the Green New Deal and all, all the socialism stuff, right? He's, he's avoided so, those landmines. And I, that to me, and I, that I do have a pretty simple definition of success. He got his, uh, he got his number one priority, which was almost $2 trillion through the Congress. And, you know, he used reconciliation, but that was not a, I can tell you that was not a foregone conclusion in the Democratic caucus when you have to bridge 
uh, AOC with Joe Manchin, et yeah. cetera. But, you know, even the it, minimum wage hike, right, which was, uh, was supposed to be a really scary, radical yeah. thing that got pushed aside. The wheels always come off a reconciliation bill at some point and it got hairy, but the wheels never really came off. And there wasn't a ton of drama about it either. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was it looked like grown up politics yeah. in the way that you and I remembered it. Now, I think he has laid some landmines for himself with with the Keystone decision and 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 others. And he's not he's not filling the nominee pipeline uh, as quickly as he should be. But uh, yeah, I think as in turn as far as a hundred days goes, um, I, I think it's going to be looked at as pretty yeah, successful. And, and the most successful part of it, honestly, isn't even the American Rescue Plan. It's the the vaccination rate. And so you know the the fact that we will have. Every adult in America who wants the vaccine by the end of May will be able to have it. By September, we if you sort of do the numbers in terms of numbers of vaccine doses rolling off the production lines, we should be at something pretty close to normal by September. From your lips to God's ear. Yeah, yeah. And that's the most important thing. That's even more important than the than the the Biden stimulus checks and, and all the goodies coming from that. So I I you know when I look at it, I think that his infrastructure is likely to be wrapped in with climate change and probably done through reconciliation in his second year budget. And so I would expect that to be honestly the big push to be done uh, next year rolling into the election. And so, again, you can do it through reconciliation. You don't need to, to get to the filibuster. Well, you can not to get and deeply into Senate procedure. It's, it's, reconciliation is great at spending money. Um, yes. it, it is not great at setting uh, the policy by which that money must be spent. And uh, yes. that's what Democrats are going to discover on, uh, on, on infrastructure and climate that, you know, the, the policy prescriptions that they want are going to, are going to fall out of the process. Yeah, I think he's likely to do the same thing, though, which is to stick with the popular stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, the left won't get all the things they want. The right won't get all the things they want. But he'll be spending money in ways which are broadly popular in which I now here's the interesting question, though. Have you ever seen a world just within, you know, presidential and congressional politics where a bill like the American Rescue Plan was as popular as it was? even among Republicans, and yet Republican legislators felt no pressure at all to vote for it. Right. Isn't that weird? It is, except, you know, for, I think for a couple of things that what, you know, one was process, uh, you know, they, they didn't feel, they didn't feel bought in on any reality of a regular order process where they would participate. And, and reconciliation has just become, you know, a very partisan tool. It was used to pass the ACA. It was used to pass uh, the, the, the Trump tax uh, reform. Uh, so it's sort of this back and forth where I, I don't think Republicans were going to participate, even though the provisions are, are broadly popular. Well, I, so to be clear, I don't mean in a good government shouldn't they have. I just meant that I, I was surprised that there weren't 10 or 12 Republicans from 55, 45 districts who looked at that and said to themselves, I have to be on board with this because this is going to mean money coming into my people and my voters are going to kill me in two years if I wasn't on board with getting money to them. You see what I'm saying? Like just as a pure, pure retail politics right. aspect to it. And I don't get the sense that there were any Republicans who felt like they even had to 
think about voting for it. I don't think Republicans feel like they would have got, this is not the, you know, the, we're, we're currently debating the return of earmarks, uh, which the House Republican Conference voted to support yesterday. You know, this is Do you not, want to have a long talk about earmarks? Because I am super into earmarks. <laughs> well, back in the day, I did appropriations in the Senate in the, for Senator Judd Gregg, the last Congress where earmarks were a thing. And the last serious deficit guy in Washington. Yeah. And you had your binder uh, with uh, green <laughs> projects, yellow yes. projects, and red projects. And and every city councilman and county commissioner had made his pilgrimage to your office to plead his case. And that was, you know, to the point of the, uh, of the, of the Recovery Act and Republicans getting credit for it, he's not going to, no, no member of Congress is going to stand in front of that water treatment plant with the giant check uh, and do the photo yes. op for the local paper like we did 15 years ago. Would we be better off bringing earmarks back? 100%. I think so, too. 100%. I think so. So Jonathan Rauch wrote a piece on this four or five years ago, I think, in which he said that this is one of those cases where, you know, so eliminating earmarks was a really big deal. And it was a reform. And the idea was, look, it's so wasteful. It messes up politics. We got to be more efficient. And what people... I think didn't appreciate. Now, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's not because they're stupid or anything, but because systems are complicated, you know, and complex systems are hard to understand how they're going to operate and when you change them. That yes, earmarks are wasteful, but they also act as lubrication, and that that lubrication is really important to the macro health of the system, and that you can sacrifice economic efficiency in important ways and gain healthier politics. Does that sound right to you? That or sounds one hundred percent right to me. And the you know the the former term for it, denigrating term, but log rolling, which is how legislatures in every time and every place uh, have operated, uh, because you have the macro consideration. But if I don't have my micro interest in in that bill, I, I'm I'm much less disposed to support it. You're exactly right. It's it's lubrication for the process. And I would argue, you know, that spending has not gone away. Uh, it's just controlled by the executive agencies. Congress has the constitutional power of the purse, one. Uh, and they also have the responsibility and the line of sight into these districts uh, where the projects need to be funded. This actually ties back into what we first started talking about, which was the the idea of everything being Flight 93, right? Everything being the the Goddardamerang, the, the fight that ends all fights. And one of the things earmarks let you do is it let you bribe the losers into being okay with things, right? And that turns out, like, it sounds terrible, but it turns out to actually be pretty awesome and kind of important because it lets people who are on the losing side of, of legislative fights get some goodies and get something to let them walk away from it saying, Okay, you know, and and if it has to be wasteful to take people on the wrong side of, of fights and make them feel okay with losing, that's okay. Like, that's not a bad way to waste some money, right? I agree with you uh, 100%. It could go a long way toward toward making our politics a little more reasonable. I wonder how many of these other reforms, good government reforms, that were undertaken in the last 25 years have turned out to have really deleterious effects on our politics. Hey, look, you can, you know, you can trace this back to to the Republican uh, takeover of the House in, in 1994. Uh, a lot of these sort of good government reforms 
uh, where we, in my view, over-democratized the institutions, uh, particularly in the House. Uh, and you saw this with when John Boehner lost control of his caucus. He had neither the sticks nor the carrots to keep recalcitrant members in line. And so a guy like Mark Meadows felt free to make a motion to vacate the chair and chase Boehner out of the leadership, uh, which, you know, a Sam Rayburn or a Lyndon Johnson, that member would have been sent to the American equivalent of political Siberia. Yeah. You know, if we wanted to really go, go dark on this, I might even say that the democratization of the primary process in electing presidents and senators and, and House members has turned out to be less eff- less good at producing good outcomes for us than smoke-filled backwards. <laughs> well, don't get me started on McCain-Feingold, yeah. which took the soft money away from the political uh, committees, the, the RNC, the DNC, the NRSC, the DCCC, all of these, all these various House and Senate party run campaign committees and, you know, made it possible for any billionaire with a crackpot theory to write a big fat check and, totally. and, and create, you know, but that was McCain-Feingold and it was an attempt to, and now, you know, I think a lot of people would like to have that system back yeah. because- This unintended consequences, unintended consequences, right? This is, this is the way the world works. And I, I do kind of mean that we- in a weird way, so we are in a hyper-partisan environment where the parties themselves don't actually have enough power. And I think those two those two facts are related. I think if the parties had more power, we would probably have less partisanship among the actual electorate. Well, Jonathan, uh, before we solve every problem in existence, we, sh- we should probably think about time. And I just want to ask you uh, a final question. You are a great Uh, pop culture critic in addition to uh, a political critic. What have you been watching to get yourself through the pandemic? What's on your Netflix, your Amazon Prime playlist? Gosh, I've been watching a lot of bad stuff for one of my (laughs) other podcasts. Um, I watched this terrible French made-for-TV movie called Sentinel over the weekend on Netflix. I do not recommend it. But I'm kind of excited for the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, yes. which comes out tonight. Yes, it drops. on HBO Max. It's four hours long, and I think it'll be terrible. But I expect it to be terrible in very interesting ways. Why can't DC make a decent superhero movie? They've got the best superheroes and the worst movies. I, I don't know. But so the for anybody who doesn't follow this... It's a fascinating corporate story, what happened to Justice League, because Justice League was being directed by Zack Snyder. The studio behind it, Warner Brothers, was watching what he was doing and really didn't like it. And so they essentially shoved him off the project. They brought in Joss Whedon, who directed The Avengers, the granddaddy of them all. And what Whedon did was even worse. And Warners knew it, but they couldn't, having already sacked one director, they couldn't (laughs) push out another one, right? And so... It's one of these funny bits of, you know, if you are interested in corporate management theory, you know, you, you never hire somebody you can't fire, right? Right. Never, ever, ever hire somebody you can't fire. And Whedon became unfireable because he had been brought in to, to replace a big name director who had already been pushed out. And so now we had one really bad version of Justice League, and now we're going to get a twice as long different version of it by the original director <laughs> that will also probably be bad. But we're going to watch and it. I'm just... I'm just kind of, it's like watching, 
in Speed 2, which is also a terrible movie, but the whole the whole thing of it is that for an entire movie, you have two giant boats about to collide with one another and you just can't wait to see <laughs> it happen. You can't wait. You can't wait. I got one for you uh, also on HBO Max. Gamora is a oh. is an Italian uh, crime crime drama set on the gritty streets of Naples. And you got to watch it in the Italian. Don't uh, don't do the dubbed over English. Oh, dubbing is terrible. It's yeah. terrible. Hundred percent. I will. I will give that a try. Thank you, sir. Jonathan Last. This has been a great conversation. I hope you'll come back again, and we'll break everything else down. Thank you so much for joining me on Fourteenth and G. Anytime. It was a pleasure.